So, hello everybody, and uh, welcome to a new episode of The Solar Journey. My guest today is Jörg Althaus. Welcome to the show, Jörg. Thank you, Thorsten, for the invitation. Yeah, sure. So, Jörg is the Director Engineering Services, Quality and ESG at Clean Energy Associates. CEA, in brief, uh, in, uh, was founded in 2008 and is based in uh, Denver, Colorado, USA, and Shanghai, China, and also now, of course, since Jörg is in uh, Cologne, I guess also in uh, in Germany. It's a global company uh, company operating worldwide, um, and CEA covers uh, various services like quality assurance for solar PV and battery storage, supply chain management, and engineering services. And uh, roughly 175 people work at CEA. Jörg Althaus himself, he lives in Cologne, as I just mentioned, in Germany. Um, yeah, where I, by the way, also spent 10 years, 10 great years of my life. <laughs> uh, yeah, while I was a solar yeah, PhD student and researcher at the Forschungszentrum Mülich, which is um, uh, 45 oh. minutes drive from, from Cologne. Yeah. So he, he joined CEA only four months ago, but uh, Still, he's a, he can be regarded as a veteran and with 10 years in the business, also a pioneer in the field of um, quality assurance for PV power plants. And uh, why? Why? Because he before he joined CEA, he spent 22 years with TÜV Rhineland, TUV Rhineland, um, surely one of the most renowned global institutions when it comes down to any sort of certification quality control. And... Uh, also, particularly TÜV Rhineland itself can be regarded as one of the pioneers of quality control in the solar PV sector. So 22 years ago, he started as a master student at TUV. And during this time, he developed a solar cell measurement wise. Um, and of course, as the founder of myself, as uh, of Wavelabs, that's obviously something that catched my eye. <laughs> and this but most importantly, this shows that he really understands the core of solar modules, which is sometimes not the case. So he did finish his thesis, of course, uh, by now. Um, he holds a degree in electrical engineering. And uh, so don't think he has been doing this for 22 years. No, no. He climbed the ranks within TUV, seven different job titles. If you check out his LinkedIn profile, where he's actually quite busy. And uh, yeah, now he can be seen on any almost any stage on uh, every conference and workshop when the topic is related to testing, quality inspection and tracking and uh, social governance. So Jörg, um, as I said, I lived in Cologne for, for 10 years myself and Cologne is infamous for its excessive carnival celebrations. What do you do during carnival? Do you leave the city or you join the crowd? <laughs> Well, look, I, you know, I, I came to Cologne when I started the job at TÜV, so Carnival in Cologne was new to me. In the beginning, I did celebrate it heavily, which was fun when I was young, but nowadays I tend to leave town. <laughs> okay. <laughs> understand, understand. So anybody who is in uh, Cologne early of the year, um, February, March, uh, check out if the, the Carnival season is on and uh, prepared for some heavy partying yeah. 
not only in bars and clubs, but also on the street, which is actually most of the fun. You know? Yeah, so um, 22 years, I guess, it's it's um, that you started your your first job, I think, in in uh, in solar and PV. Why, why did you do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I tend to go back further if you want to hear the whole story. You know, sure, I, sure. Actually, um, when I was in ninth grade, which would have been around 1990, um, at school, you, you do the three-week uh, placement internship at school. Mm-hmm. And back then, uh, I actually worked for a company called Solar Wagner. Three weeks. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a small uh, company back then. It was like a community. They were doing solar thermal collectors and sent them out as self-built kits, really pioneering. And it was also a community that uh, had a bit of a aspect where almost everybody was getting the same wage, really pioneering uh, company. Now, of course, it's a big company. They also do photovoltaics. But um, back then, it was it was really my first experience working with renewables, and I I liked it so much that um, when I when I finished my school, the uh, German Abitur, um, I uh, took back to that company and did a summer job, uh, and in it, um, you know, building then assembling some of the the, the stuff that goes on the small uh, residential rooftops. And in fact, at that time, my parents decided to put solar on their roof. And so I was being paid to build my parents' solar rooftop. So that was uh, how I got all engaged with it. And uh, after school, then I had to make the decision, what would I want to do with my life? And uh, so I, I had changed the final years of my school into a um, specialized uh, high school that was also offering electronics as a major. Uh-huh. Uh, so I took that, um, which was pretty hard, um, <laughs> tough subject, and kind of gave me the conclusion, maybe I should not study that. It's too tough. <laughs> but, you know, this is this is back when there was no universities offering special renewable energy courses. So if I wanted to go in renewables, it was either biology or something like that. So I, I stuck with power electronics in the end because I didn't find anything better um, and I, I liked it so I did um, did my university in Darmstadt county of Hessen and uh, uh, there was another place when I did a company called Bowman Solar they were actually doing sterling machines run by solar mm-hmm. very special uh, that are not around anymore um, but yeah when I when I finished university my, like you said the, the, the final uh, thesis was with TIFF and I guess I, I continued work on a solar cell measurement device that somebody had started work on but couldn't complete it and I built the software I, I got all the little uh, you know uh, sensors to attach and it was it was it was cool it was a, like a big copper block that was cooled and uh, sucking with vacuum pump the cells to the copper block and then doing all the fine-tuning of the single lamp uh, it was metal halide lamp uh, but it was it was a challenging project uh, but yeah apparently company was happy with it um, it was a small crew back then at TÜV um, actually uh, once I did a count when you really counted the core team I think when they onboarded me I was kind of employee number seven in the team um, but that was a time when uh, it, what was it 2001 I guess uh, when also the solar manufacturing was still strong in Europe uh, and it was growing extensively. So 
yeah they needed somebody to work on 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 the testing really so i started as a test engineer in the lab yeah and and how did you get to know the the people at tuv um how did that yeah. how did yeah you... that's that's interesting yeah. also because there was in Jülich, there was a summer school for um students oh, right. yeah. the renewable energy summer school and uh, i went there um from my university in darmstadt just during the summer it was cool people were camping on the ground and uh, during during the um, semester break they were doing this renewable course for students i think it was one week uh, and there were guest speakers and one of the guest speakers was Willy Fasen, which uh -huh. later became my boss okay uh, he's, he's from tiff rhineland he was presenting on quality assurance as you would expect um <laughs> uh, but this was the first time i ever heard that tiff or any tiff was in solar back then i you know i was not from the industry so that was interesting to me, and uh, I, I sent in my application for my final thesis, and <coughs> it was TÜV and SMA that I had sent my applications in, and both wanted me, so it was a tough decision, either Kassel or Köln. Okay, excellent. So, uh, well, SMA didn't do bad these back then as well, so uh, must have been, I understand the hard choice here. E excellent, interesting. So then you, uh, as I mentioned, you had seven different job titles 22 years at, at cologne uh, at tuv and uh you, you saw the boom and the bust and um you, you made lots of friends i guess also inside tuv and then you left the company now after 22 years what was that like that was that was that was really tough i mean it, it took me about 12 months i think to actually make the decision <laughs> uh, it, was, it was not so much that I was, you know, wanting to leave TÜV or something. It was just, you know, maybe it's midlife crisis. Uh, you've got, I've got 20 years behind me, 20 years to go. Uh, you know, either you stick for life or you, you better uh, do something with it. And um, so, I, would, I, you know, as you said, I, I took uh, really uh, different roles at TÜV. And I'm so thankful for everything and everybody I meet with, within TÜV and uh, learned um, doing international management at some stage, you know, taking the route from senior expert to actually leading teams and international teams that was um, really crossroads for me but it was I always appreciated it and uh, but when the day came that was my last day it was I mean there were tears and there were you know it was it was emotional yeah. it was a tough decision but you know when I looked and you know of course people were talking to me headhunters and whatever CA was always a company that was on my on my radar because I you know I thought look it's you have corporate structures and you have a company where up to the CEO everybody is in the same boat it's a bit different than in a big corporation where you report upwards and then you have um, you know the further up you go the less understanding is there of what you're actually doing day to day that was one appealing thing the other thing is of course um, it's general generally faster faster growing pace in, in smaller companies. And uh, that was something I was looking forward to, not knowing that uh, after I joined, a few weeks later, CA was bought by Intertech, which is bigger <laughs> than the Rhineland. Yes. So uh, that was interesting, but it's I think it's a good fit because uh, Intertech itself is a, is a testing inspection, certification consulting um, company predominantly grown in the oil and gas segment. And uh, now, of course, everybody in oil and gas is going into renewables. So uh, that brings a lot of, uh, you know, um, potential for CEA. Yeah. And vice versa. Yeah. So CEA, roughly 180 employees. How, 
Um, that's what the website says. And uh, how big is Intertech? I mean, it's a... Uh... Intertech is more than 40,000 globally. 40,000? Yes. Four zero. Yeah. Wow. So you're back uh, in the structure. I think the, the homepage <laughs> needs, needs updating because we're hiring aggressively. I would say we're more than 200. Okay. So you're back in corporate structure, or are, are you? Can you still operate independently within CEA? Or well, I mean, CEA was fully integrated into one business unit, uh, which is a global business unit. So uh, for the time being, CEA is 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 operating under the same brand uh, with the same management. So everything is okay um, as for that. And and there is a lot of. I mean, it's with a big corporation like Intertech, you meet people almost daily from different countries because you have opportunities all over. And that's the big uh, advantage now that uh, CA can go out and say, okay, we do have an office in wherever the customer wants help and we can work together with the engineers that uh, Intertech has. So it's yeah. all of a sudden giving a lot more faster response. Yeah, yeah, excellent. So let's uh, let's talk about what is CEA actually doing. Um, so who's your, let's start with your customers. Who's, who's paying you, um, who, who's, who's calling you? Uh, well, I mean, it's uh, multiple levels. Uh, main part is developers. Um, so that's developers. companies. Sorry, that's companies who build solar parks. Just to, yeah. Yeah. Um, or uh, it could be also a lot of our customers are actually um, investors. It could be equity investment. Um, quite interesting. Some uh, we're doing also consulting and market intelligence for um, investors that are looking not only into investing into assets, but actually investing into companies in the renewable segment. And they want to have a technology review. Um, and, and that's where we are quite strong because CA has a, you know, a long history in the Asian dominant uh, production market. So has a has a good overview of what's happening. Uh, see very senior staff, not only the ones that you see on the conferences in Europe, but the very strong Chinese um, background knowledge, uh, knowledge uh, owners. Um, other customers could be the EPCs. Um, EPCs predominantly do quality control either because they keep in the projects long phase or because the contract they have with the developer dictates that they do quality control. Um, and yeah, it depends a little bit on the on the type of service we offer where the customers are. Yeah. And um, what what exactly do you provide? Let's say to an EPC. EPC stands for Engineering Procurement and Construction. Mm -hmm. So companies who would let's say buy the land, build the plant, and then usually sell it after two years, uh, sell the solar plant to a to the final owner. Mm -hmm. What what kind of service do you provide to them? Right. You know, let, let's maybe cluster it a little bit by project phase rather than okay. by customer because it goes uh, along the phases. So you have, you have of course, the early stage of the planning uh, where CA can do support with site evaluation, um, but also um, then coming into the procurement phase where CA is core, where, where, we, where we grew from is supporting either the EPC or the developer in procuring the right equipment. Uh, that goes not only from the testing or inspection, but even before when negotiating the terms in the contract with the supplier, uh, you know, making sure that you're setting the bill of materials uh, of, um, of a, for example, PV module could be energy storage, could be inverter, could be tracker, uh, or then also setting the actual agreement in the contract. What is a pass and fail if you do an inspection? 
Uh, I mean, it's, it's nice to have an inspection, but if it's no agreement before what's good and what's bad, that's it, that inspection is not fully of value. So um, CA is really strong with all the inspectors. We have quality control inspectors in then helping the buyers um, in getting the quality they're paying for. There's multiple levels to this. This is, you know, factory um, auditing and setting the golden standard, as we call it. But then also the inline production monitoring, which means basically we stand next to the production line while the batch for a particular asset is being produced. That could be a project uh, over six months where we will be in the factory if needed 24 seven. Um, then of course you have the final inspection in the factory. This is you know EL power measurements and so on. In parallel, you would be reliability, would be doing reliability testing in the laboratories. And here's another advantage of now working with Intertech that we now have a, a laboratory in the US, a laboratory in China that uh, is part of the same group. And ultimately container loading inspection or post shipment inspections. Mm-hmm. Then when you go into the actual uh, plant um, production, there are services, you know, energy yield prediction, uh, construction monitoring, um, technical due diligence, and you know, it's it, the list goes on. Uh, of course, it's not always the same uh, people. Uh, so we have a strong people on the engineering service um, department in the U.S. and Europe, while in Asia, mainly the work is done on the on the uh, manufacturing side and the supply chain management. Yeah, cool. Um, and um, what's exactly the the um... The, the value you create, your differentiation. I mean, there, there's now you're in competition to TUV. What makes CA now in combination with Intertech uh, the go-to place? Right. You know, I, you know, I tend not to compare too much with competition, but if you, since you bring it up, I think there is there is different levels. I mean, CA is strong in the inspection part, and and uh, you know, TÜV has its strengths in the certification and testing. Of course, there's overlap. But the value that CA brings, I think, is just the, the number of inspectors and the exper- experience that the inspectors have on the very de- deep technology. So we don't send people just to, to do an inspection. We actually, um, you know, have uh, very, uh, all our engineers have worked on production lines before. So they know the products inside out. And uh, the value we create is avoiding products leaving the factory that don't fulfill the contract and you only find out when they're on site, which creates delays in the project, creates potential failures along the line. Um, so it's, it's an investment in quality, but it's really a risk mitigation uh, going forward for uh, projects failing. Yeah. Um, can, can you give us an idea of what's the, I mean, there's a total cost for a, let's say, solar park and um, Give us an idea of what's the factor people need to pay you just to give an idea of, you know, you could either hire CEA or do it, not do any quality control and uh, live with the risk, right? So so what, can you give us a, an idea of the of the balance between the, the risk and the, the cost? Yeah. Well, Ian, look, that's that's a that's a question I typically also ask the customers. What do you think you should be spending <laughs> on quality? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and the answers are multi multiple that you, that you that you get. But um, 
I mean, it's it's a hard question to say because um, quality doesn't. It's not just the inspection. You know, there's all mm -hmm. sorts of level of uh, investment that you need to do on the quality, uh, which which uh, does not all go to one contractor. It's not all CEA. You know, there's yeah. in house. So, but typically, it's like one percent of the investment is somewhat related to quality. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that the budget that CA is getting, I wish it was, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, uh, let's put it that way. If, if you, uh, look at more the value creation, look at, for example, if you have a particular failure mechanism, uh, let's, let's take a few years back and you look at PID or something where you have potential of 20, 40% power degradation in within two years of operation. Mm. Uh, that which creates millions of lost uh, revenue for an, an asset operator. And to avoid this, you have to spend a couple of $10,000 maybe. Uh, that's more the story I like to tell. And, and if you spend a little bit of inspection cost in the beginning of a project, the avoided cost in the long term is 100 times, 1,000 times. Mm. It's... Um, I'm not going to share with you now exactly the... You know, sure, 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 don't worry. Yeah, but I mean, and, and you, you mentioned, let's say roughly 1%. Let's let's stick to that. And um, so there's, a, you do a procurement and a factory audits. Um, what other services or activities are involved in a, the total, total quality assurance of a, when you build a, a solar park? Yes, I mean, like I said, it starts with the proper site selection and, and uh, nowadays with uh, biofacial, you do albedo studies, you, you do shading analysis, you do also, you know, ground analysis. Um, it's all sorts and, you know, you have to do your social environmental impact study. Um, it's, it's a long, long list and, and, and I'm sure a lot of people that uh, listen to your calls, they, they know part of it, but not, not all of it. And it's never that somebody like CA or other players in the field go out and say, I'm going to do everything. Because yeah. a lot of the companies have stuff in-house, they do it themselves, but they need help in specifics. And uh, yeah. so that's why, you know, I, I can't say we always do this, but um, yeah. there are things that uh, we bring that the customers don't do themselves or they want to have a third party opinion. And this is particularly important when there is potential for dispute between mm. two parties. Then yeah. it's always welcome to have a third party, which is yeah. with, which is experienced. Yeah. Would you say by now the the industry is fairly mature, so that you have a let's say a fairly fixed range of quality assurance activities, or does it really vary a lot between one customer to the other? I mean, the, the level you engage in that might vary, but if you don't do it, then someone else or they would do it in-house. But is is there like a, a best practice, like 80% do it the same, almost the same way? Or is it, or is there, there are still like people who like to take the risk and avoid all costs or have totally different technical approaches? Well, what's the level of, let's say, standardization without having it formally written down? Right? Well, I mean, there are multiple golden practice uh, best practice papers out there also mm. solar power europe has been published uh, and so on but of course it depends a little bit on the maturity of the company that is needing the services yeah. uh, and there are there is no standard that everybody is following and uh, there is also different risks that companies are willing to to take 
let's let's take an example now also where, where you can see that you need adjustment is um, we've had recently in the recent years a lot of manufacturers out of China opening new factories outside of China out of reasons uh, you know with import uh, tariffs and and whatever um and and you know even though these are tier one very renowned high quality manufacturers with new manufacturing sites new issues come because you have untrained personnel you have a ramp up phase and at such situations you would want to increase inspection rates which go out of the standard you know if, if maybe a company has a as a practice i'm going to inspect such amount of days per batch or such amount of modules by um, ISO standard guidelines that, that give you uh, batch rates, then in some certain circumstances, it's recommendable to change those. So, um, of course, ISO guidelines for sample picking, for example, are pretty common practice now when, you, when it comes to lab testing. Uh, for factory auditing, the recommendation is always to start with a high inspection rate, and then if everything is okay, you go down uh, along the project delivery. Yeah. Yeah. You just mentioned the the uh, factory audit. What what's the the key factor in production when it comes down to to quality? So what's the or other in other words, if an investor or EPC doesn't do factory auditing, what's the most likely problem he will face in the long run with his solar park? Yeah, so I mean. Or maybe the top three issues that also from come my up. experience before joining, when I had more also more lab um, interaction. One thing I can say for certain: if you if you have a project and you don't um, you don't oppose uh, impose any quality inspections or or testing, you get what others don't get, right? So because there's <laughs> always when there is an inspection, there's always rejects. There yeah. are projects that don't make it through that shipment because they don't fulfill the requirements of the project. I mean, those pallets of modules, they don't go away. They're still there. They're ending up in the market and they come to those who don't impose quality insurance. Yeah. So that's the risk. If, if you know, if, if you don't do anything, you will get what what's the leftover. Leftovers, yeah. Yeah, in a booming market, that's what happens. Um, and and tech, let's be uh, be more specific on the technical level. What's, what's the typical then te technical issue? The, the junction box falls off or the, you get... What, what happens? Yeah. Well, my junction box falls off not, but because you wouldn't see that directly in the factory. Uh, but of course, what you do see is whether the adhesive on, on the junction box is evenly distributed and, and whether there's any bubbles or delamination effects. I mean, this, these are things that visually can be spotted. Um, but of course, it, it's, it's edge distances, it's alignment, it's sharp corners on, on frames. It's, of course, cracks in, in the EL image. Uh, and now with with newer interconnection technologies, um, also new effects have arised. I mean, this is something that the PV industry has been struggling over the years. Every time there is a technology um, advanced, there's also a potential for a new risk that some, that people have not seen before. Yeah. Um, so micro cracks and uh, and uh, you know black spots uh, from from not uh, properly soldered cell um, fingers are still common. Yeah. Uh, and can be avoided if, if if inspected properly. Yeah, you just mentioned uh, innovation, and and the issues that ca can come along with it. So, uh, two things that are now coming into the market is like shingle um, modules. So you don't have the normal 
solar ribbon from cell to cell, but you put those cells on top of each other, just on the edge. Um, I would assume it's a tech, uh, like mechanically um, stressed, when you just stress test it, it's a very different uh, behavior. How, how do you regard these uh, shingle modules? Yeah, so with with any technology advance, the the advice we can give is first to um, have reliability testing extended, um, yeah. and this is testing. And then, of course, um, also on the inspection part, uh, we we tend to uh, propose higher inspection rates here in, in newer technologies. Mm. Um, in particular, for the shingles, I mean the first um, the first results that that have seen um, that I've seen, there were um, additional risks for some newer types of cracking, but uh, it, it depends also on the encapsulant that is used, and um, there are multiple levels that need to be looked at how to laminate those modules. Mm. It's not something where I would today say it's a, it's a technology not not uh, mature. Uh, it's it's definitely coming. But it's it's advisable to have a closer look than something that has been around for a long time. Yeah. So do you also then consider new testing methods, right? Because if if there's a new technology, then you might not cover the the standard test might not cover the the new issues, right? So do you how, how do you approach it? Does CA has its own think tank, or you just go to always for the standards and then say, well, that's someone else mm -hmm. has to think of. We, we do have a think tank. Uh, <laughs> so we have yeah. our um, technology and quality department, we call it TQ, um, very senior guys on there. Um, you might know George Tulupas, but uh, there are others in the team, like I said, in, in China with a lot of um, experience from development, even, even on the cell production lines. Um, so yes, when there is new technologies, we give advice what, uh, what might be a good test protocol. Of course, mm. now we are also in a situation where Finally, there is a reliability test program from IEC, uh, International Electric uh, Committee, um, that, that gives some guidance. Um, this is a very lengthy test program, but we pick out of that what we feel uh, is suitable for the particular technology. Yeah. Uh, and that helps because when you base um, things in the discussion on a standard, it's always easier to come to agreement than when, when somebody pulls it out of the uh, thin air. Yeah. But there's always, and it will, will always be ongoing, uh, the discussion of how reliable are those reliable tests? No? How well do they uh, copy the, the reality for 20, 30 years? What's your, I mean, with 20 years, you you, <laughs> you, you installed modules 20 years ago. <laughs> so you, you, you've you been longer than the quality uh, phase, uh, quality assurance phase. Um, what's your... What's your pick on how good are those standard tests? Look, I mean, you know, I can't name how many times I've been asked by customers say, uh, what do I need to do that I know it's going to last 20 years? And, yeah. you know, that's that's something, as you said, 20 years back, I've seen the modules built then, which had, uh, you know, almost one millimeter thick solar cells or, or something like that and, yeah. uh, and steel frames or, or whatever. So the thing is, the innovation cycle in solar is so short that within six months, you might have a, a big step. And the reliability testing takes six months. So, yeah. you know, there is really uh, that difficulty that you will not have the ability to have also a test that 100% simulates reality because reality is so complex and you don't, uh, you, you can't copy it 
in an environmental chamber because yeah. uh, it, it's just um, it's always a compromise between cost, time, and what you want to achieve. Yeah. So the best that the reliability testing can do is screen for early mortality and uh, potential of degradation. But taking from the result the exact time of death is, an, is another channel uh, uh, challenge because then you would have to do that per bill of material. Yeah. Per you know every single component of that module, you cannot say because it's it's from this production line and this bill of materials that will exactly be the same for another one. So that's a that's a challenge that I don't see will be overcome anytime soon. But um, the the test procedures and and of course also the the number of people working on this has increased so much that there is so much big brain, good brain in that that i think we found good compromise yeah yeah i mean you always have to not just test a single component let's say the back sheet but you always have to test it also in correlation with the specific cell the specific interconnection because there might be some yeah uh effects that occur only between those two components right so that that makes it so crazy challenging what what, what do you think about digital approaches like um digital twins uh, simulation uh, is that a path forward or, it, or is it always just looking backwards right you can explain it afterwards okay do you think there will be a time where we can predict failures because we used choose one new component and add it to the other well understood old components well, definitely. I think there is so much to go on still with digital twins and, and um, you know, making the whole data available more digital. Uh, when I come to think, you know, doing our inspections in the factory, we have all the data for each single module. But along the time when it comes to the plant, all that is lost nowadays because yeah. people don't know which module ends up where and, and uh, you know, even having different bill of materials. So I think we, we there is big opportunity to bring the puzzle pieces together and in the end have the digital spin and knowing exactly the flash list and the flash module and the, the, the outcoming inspection EL, the visual, all the report on each individual component, not only the modules, but you know the inverters, the anything really, and have that available in a digital spin and then combine it with the uh, monitoring um, devices and also bringing in sensors that monitor for soiling and so on. I think we still have a path to go. What is exciting is that, um, for example, from Intertech um, in the oil and gas, it's common practice that you have um, assets digitized and, and all the sensors that are on, a, on an asset are visualized and preventive um, maintenance is, is derived from these, um, this data. And, you know, that, that's something I'm excited to see come to solar also. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, so you can, uh, of course, the oil and gas industry is a lot more mature. It's been around for 120, 150 years or so. So that could be really interesting if, uh, if you can learn from this more mature uh, industry. Cool. Um, I keep wondering, I mean, I do know that solar module manufacturers need to store the EL, the electroluminescence images. And uh, when I asked them, they they do that because they are obliged to do that, but basically it's uh, lots of lots of lots of terabytes of data, and uh, I'm wondering if you know if that makes sense or if people do work with it. What's your take? Yeah, yeah I mean we work with it. 
and uh, of, course, um, of course when i mean also in in other projects in my previous job it's it's something that when there is an issue in a system that's what the pv module manufacturer will also pull out of the head and say look we, we can prove it was good when it left our factory or uh, you know or or not and uh, unfortunately i've also seen el images being swapped for others um you know and, and you can prove that uh, when when you when you get a module and you compare uh, and and uh, so it's important to have that data and compare it with data down the down the timeline yeah okay it is being used Definitely. Yeah, cool. Um, a new innovation coming up. Nobody knows exactly when. Next three, five, ten years is the tandem perovskite, possibly silicon uh, tandem structure. Um, perovskite is known to be very unstable if it's not encapsulated well. Um, what, what's your what's your impression? Um, where are we on the maturity level of this technology, and when will it come? When will we have the first gigawatt produced in a year? Well, let me let me pull out my crystal ball. But uh, you and I, I think we've both been both been to the uh, PVSEC uh, this year, the World Conference. Uh, I was I was you know a bit surprised to see so many papers, uh, which is good. Obviously, a lot of people working on it now. Um, mm. My personal feel it's still like I, I, I share your opinion. Five years. Probably um, that we that we actually see proper uh, uh, you know use of it, um, but uh, you know it's it's touchy. If you if you talk to people, some people say no, it's uh, stable now and we can already build it in large scale. I haven't seen it. Um, I'm curious. It's definitely a, a, a big step forward if we, if, if we have um, this uh, next level of uh, efficiency gain. Five years at least, I would say. Yeah, there's this Chinese company called MicroQuanta. They are pretty pushy on uh, bringing this technology into the field. I think they even claim they build a solar park anytime soon, or they have built already. Do you have any any details through your Chinese office? Um, I didn't. I didn't prepare for that question. Um, <laughs> we might. I, I personally don't, but I'm yeah. sure our Chinese colleagues are uh, up to date with the technology. Okay, yeah. I'll look it up. Okay, excellent. Um, yeah, so we talked a lot about factories uh, where cells and modules are built. Um, so now we, we hit the, the solar park. The modules are installed in the solar park. What's the, the key challenging in, in operating a solar power plant this, today, right? What's the... Once you've passed the, your testing... What's the failure rate um, of modules, inverters? What are other crucial components in a in a solar park? Yeah, so I mean, uh, we've talked a lot about the module, but of course, uh, as I said, we also do this um, inspection part for the trackers, for the inverters, for the energy storage, even for the transformers. So there are issues there as well. But to your question on on the side, I think one thing that uh, we we still need to also make sure everybody understands. Is one part is the components, but the other part is assembling the components. And uh, unfortunately, um, and I've been to a site recently myself, which I really enjoyed because I, I, I don't usually get to the sites anymore. Um, I was surprised to still see exactly the same installation issues that I saw, you know, 
10, 15 years ago, and you've got exactly the same issues. Um, you know, cables being under stress, uh, bending radius not kept, uh, cables going over sharp corners and uh, misaligned uh, connectors, um, not tightened uh, module screws, all sorts of uh, things that are really easy to avoid. But the reason they still pop up is because, I mean, first of all, we have a current situation where we have a lack of skilled personnel just because more solar needs to be installed than we have trained people, I guess. Um, tense timelines means that contractors use subcontractors who might use sub-subcontractors, so the, the skill level is not always where it should be. Rough handling of modules um, in, in the construction side leading to cracks. So um, we get involved a lot recently in Europe, and particularly on um, rooftop fire safety inspections, which are, you know, not really doing a full inspection, just doing a baseline and, and making sure there are no major safety issues. And we had to turn a couple of um, systems off um, because they were just imminently unsafe. And uh, and that's 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 a concern and uh, learning in the industry still needs to continue. Yeah. And and what was the, the the issue with that specific plant there? What, what was? Well, you know, first of all, if you if you already find that uh, field wired connectors, for example, are not uh, not properly, um, you know, assembled, uh, they already heat up. When you know, a few days after um, installation, that would be an immediately a reason why we would recommend to turn off, rework, and. And, and then turn the system back on. Yeah, yeah. Okay, excellent. Hey, I know you're mostly working on uh, um, uh, large solar parks. Um, not sure what your ex experience or your know-how is with the rooftop systems. A question I'm asked really, really often is, what happens if the house burns and um, do the uh, firemen, do they get electric shock executed? Um, can you enlighten us what's the situation yeah. yeah so i mean we i was involved in in some research years back uh, which was also working together with the fire guards of munich um, um because in, in particular in germany there was a big discussion about you know if i have a solar system the fire guards will let my house burn down because they're afraid to go in and so there was a lot of miscommunication also in the public um, press um in fact one issue that some legislations or countries might have is that if, if you go to a small village, the local fireman is probably rest of the week, he might be, you know, the mayor or the baker or whatever, and it, it's a voluntary side job. And maybe once or twice a year, they have to work on a big fire. Um, and then the number of solar they had seen in their life might have been very limited. And there was some uncertainty. Mm. But um, the fire guards had received all the training. There is, there, I mean, there is really basics that they need to understand. And one thing is to know there is a solar system and mm. uh, ideally know where the cables go. But I, I have been certain that um, there is no uh, fire that will the fire guards will just stand by and watch. There might be situations where they will be hesitant to go inside. Yeah. Um, because life safety is always coming first. 
but um, you know things in the regulations have changed also with distances on the roof so they can enter through the roof um, when there is a fire and, and so on so nowadays that is not so much of an issue anymore okay the fire guards will come <laughs> and not just look <laughs> okay um More and luckily, if, if I may add, yeah, sure. the number of fires caused by PV are minimal. I mean, every fire is too much, but uh, luckily, it's only a very, very small fire. Uh, yeah. Fires, of course, there are actually fires with solar, but solar is not the cause. But um, then, of course, the fire guards still need to know that there is solar because there is a potential risk of electric yeah. uh, touching parts. Yeah. Um, a solar park is a pretty macro system, so it's it's then hard to track down if there's an issue, for example, which module has an issue. So do you see an, the need to measure individual modules? So there's mobile labs where you can measure individual modules on site. Um, and also, what do you think of drone-based imaging systems that use electron renaissance, infrared imaging? Do we need other met methods on top um what, what's what's your recommendation to uh, your customers if they talk about quality assurance during operation so going in sequence of your questions um yeah. testing on site um a lot of el testing on site is happening and we're we're doing that um all the time post shipment inspection or even on the racks uh, that's something that is that is being pushed and uh, for reason because you want to make sure that uh, there is no, no issues by you know rough handling in the field but also in the transportation mm. um, power measurement in the field is something that is um, done uh, it's not the same volume as el because a lot of people seem to think if, if the el image doesn't show anything and i've done the power measurement in the factory in the field doesn't give me really much uh, additional information for new modules. Of course, yeah. there are situations where you might want to have a claim against a supplier down the line uh, when the plant is two, three, four or five years old or whatever, and individuals modules might be taken off the racks for measurement because you have higher accuracy than measuring on the racks. Um, a mobile lab can be a solution there, but a mobile lab is, you know, of course, it makes only sense when you have a number of modules. You don't you don't come with a mobile lab to measure 10, 20 modules because mm -hmm. the effort of bringing the stuff there doing is going to be more expensive than actually putting those modules on a pallet and sending them to lab. Yeah. Uh, but if, if it's hundreds of modules, it makes sense. And Intertech has a mobile lab in, in the US, um, also looking at uh, this further down the line now. Um, as for the drones, heavily used. Uh, I mean, infrared from drones is, at least in Europe, uh, more or less a standard now. Um, EL is, is a thing I'm personally um, quite following for some years now. EL from drones, um, I, I totally believe it's coming. Um, it's it's happening already. I mean, it's 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 a it's a proven technology. Um, there is, of course, still at the moment some hesitance. And do you want to pay the price for it? Because of course, it's it's nighttime work. It's uh, a little more uh, slower than infrared, uh, and so on. But there is a lot of improvement um, happening, and I totally believe um, that's that's the next thing. Yeah. Um, do you follow what's going on in? Uh with um, photoluminescence 
measurement via drones. So that's a new approach, which is a bit complicated, right? But uh, be of course nice because you don't need to interact with the solar park itself. Um, the idea mm -hmm. is to, with EL, you need to uh, interact with the solar park. With PL, you wouldn't need to. Um, yeah, we're actually doing some uh, studies ourselves also with that um, partnership with Intertech. But, uh, you know, there are multiple levels. You have near infrared, you have the EL, you have, and, and I think there's research going on, which I'm following. Really keen to see what is the best practice coming out of that. Um, in the end, at least today, I don't think there's the one technology that will solve, solve everything. You may need to combine. And that's what I see at the moment that... Uh, a lot of people rely 100% on infrared drones and uh, in images, and I see issues with that because um, also, since it's an easy technology, there's a lot of companies flying with freelancers who might be doing wedding photos on the weekend and fly solar bus lines <laughs> in between. Um, and, and in the end, there is a risk of misinterpretation of uh, of images if, if it's not known the circumstances under which these were taken so just as an example you have a system that might be you know regulated by the um, utility and if that's happening while the drone is flying and the pilot doesn't know that actually the power plant is not at that time connected to the grid and but it's an open circuit you get completely different infrared image then and it could completely lead to complete misinterpretation uh, so that's why i think there's uh, always a value of combining at least two methods yeah. You mentioned, I think now the third time, the skill of the people involved, right? And um, so that's interesting, right? So lots of know-how and technology is there, but for the installation, for the for the factory workers, for the people who install, for, who, for the people who do quality assurance, we need to make sure as a, as a solar industry to, that we always use really skilled labor, right? To, uh, to avoid uh, trouble, right? And uh, of course, in a, in a growing industry, that's the one of the key challenges, right? You need to uh, educate a lot faster than in a, let's say, stable or slowly growing industry. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think at the moment, everybody that's in the industry um, probably has some issues in finding new talent because everybody is chasing them. Uh, so collectively, I think we need to work on building training to, to get, make, make this attractive to new talent um, also and, and and really get more people involved because terawatt market uh, needs a lot of people yeah yeah um so your wish list um what, what what innovations do you think are required to to maximize performance make your job easier for for quality assurance do you, do you, what, what would you like to have <laughs> It's almost Christmas, right? So it's almost um, Christmas. Yeah, we've got <laughs> snow here in Leipzig. <laughs> okay. Um, well, you know, we touched on this before. Um, getting getting the um, digitalization on having end-to-end uh, -end, uh, quality control also available on platforms, and that could incorporate lab inspection, field inspection, drone inspection, sensors. Um, I think that really will be uh, something that, that the industry needs to work on to get the puzzle pieces that everybody is separate, separately working on together to get uh, more intelligence and come to the point where you could predict the the issues to come. Yeah. 
um, that that's really where I think um, the learning needs to go. Yeah. From the technology advances, you know, of course, we we see um, energy storage um, has still a lot of potential in coming down with cost, with having new innovation. Nowadays, with with you know the energy crisis in Europe, also um, is a completely different market. Uh, scenario than anybody was expecting so storage all of a sudden is economically viable almost everywhere because you can produce electricity cheap and sell it expensive so all of a sudden that market is growing so bigly so I, th I think um, there's going to be big um, technology advances in, in storage which I'm excited about yeah yeah um, let's leave the very technical area um, when we talk about carbon footprint of solar modules, which is now uh, widely discussed, and also local content regulations for certain markets. Um, how could this be tracked, right? I mean, I, I produce my modules in a factory in uh, country X, um, and country Y says, I don't want to have a solar module with a high uh, um, carbon footprint. How can this be tracked? How, you know, it's it's... There's not a, a stamp on the module. I mean, there could be a stamp, of course, but how can you prove that it's uh, it's true? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, multiple levels to the question. Um, you know what 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 CEA has been engaged with a lot in the recent uh, month is uh, particularly driven through the US, but now coming to Europe with the UFLPA uh, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act in the US, where particular modules are not coming through customs anymore. Mm. Um, the request is there to prove where does my material come from. So this mm. is a question about traceability. Mm -hmm. And before that, there was no traceability in solar. I mean, maybe for some parts, but uh, materials get mixed up and you have uh, a raw material uh, where that traceability is not available. So first step is to build a traceability system, uh, you know, and, and audit on that. And, you know, put it in place, first of all, that upstream, we know where the material is coming from, and then uh, also allow for auditing against that system. That's something that has only really happened in the last 18 months. Um, but it's it's getting there. And what you're touching on then is, of course, now we have talk about local manufacturing outside of uh, the now dominant uh, market uh, for production. Um, which will be supported by regulation, put it in the US or in Europe, where um, the European Commission is talking about putting uh, requirements in place, for example, for carbon footprint, mm. for example, um, for um, uh, energy efficiency, uh, and so on, with the target, of course, that such regulation should support uh, sustainability of local production. Mm. I have seen years back. Uh, North African countries or whatever, having rules for local content for their systems. That all failed, in my view, because it, it allows the manufacturer to build a, a factory, but then it's not competitive um, in the long run against gigawatt factories. So with, with the new rise for uh, manufacturing in Europe, for example, it's, it's essential to have tools in place that make production sustainable in the long run. And carbon footprint and, and such um, measures are one puzzle piece that would help local manufacturing. 
yeah. to survive. Okay. Yeah. And and there's then software solutions also like really on the ground auditing for these components or how, how does it how is it yeah. implemented? Yeah, sorry, I hadn't, hadn't answered that part of the question. So yeah. yes, of course, the carbon footprint calculations, there are um, softwares available that, that most people use, but the, the software is the one thing. The data <clears throat> input for those databases is crucial, of course. And then you have to go deep in uh, you know, energy flows. Um, not only the carbon footprint is interesting, but also the, the whole footprint, looking at water consumption, you know, uh, you know, um, poisonous materials being used and so on. So there is multiple levels. And in the end, the calculations are done based on input parameters that you can either collect from going to the factories and going through the procurement, uh, but also doing measurements. Um, yeah, tedious work. Um, um, lots of opportunity, I would assume, for CEA. That's good. <laughs> yeah. um, Excellent. Thanks a lot, Jörg. Um, my very last question, you touched on it already a little bit, but maybe you can, uh, when you look at the industry as a whole, right, and forget about tiny aspects, um, th that would be my, my last question. Um, what's required to take solar, including storage and wind, um, all the good renewables to the next level? How, how can we accelerate the 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 deployment of solar what's or other words what's blocking what are roadblocks that uh avoid the that we reach the next level yeah. you look i i i tend to think we are already on the next level i mean going one year back nobody <laughs> believed we'd be, we'd be where we are now and what has happened is that there's a complete shift in the perception of uh, solar in the market you know not yeah. only only the people that have been in industry for some time are looking at it. We have all these new companies investing in, in solar because it's just, where do you invest money in now? Uh, you know, where do you get a dividend? Solar. Uh, so that's just, I think, what was needed, that you come to the point, and everybody was thinking it's going to happen when oil is getting more expensive or whatever, but we're there now. I mean, it's competitive. So it's, there is no roadblock in that sense. What What is a roadblock is at the moment in, in getting it out quick enough is permitting, is workforce, and disruptions in supply chains. Uh, so, so these are things that, that need to be solved. But the market itself and the circumstances, are, we are on the next level. Wonderful closing. Jörg, thanks a lot um, for joining. Um, all the best in your new job, in your new environment. Um, and I'm sure we'll meet soon at some conference or workshop. Thanks a lot, Jörg. Thanks, Thorsten. Pleasant talk. Have a yeah. good day. You too. Bye-bye.